Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Sun and Steel, a, a book by Yukio Mishima. I think I'm saying that right. But uh, uh, do you know anything about Mishima, the author? Uh, I, I don't know a whole lot of his history. It's clear that he lived through World War II, though, uh, in Japan. Right. So the screenwriter of Taxi Driver, he makes all these like movies about loner men, and he adapted the life of Mishima into like a four-stage uh, movie. And so that would be an interesting movie to watch at some point. He was an uh, individual who served in the Japanese army during World War II, and uh, he tried to lead... Uh, revivalism of traditional Japanese culture. And so uh, he got big into bodybuilding and eventually he struck out and tried to throw a coup against the new government and reinstitute uh, traditional Japanese emperor type uh, government. But that failed and he committed suicide with the seppuku. Uh, yeah. In, yeah, when he's about what forty-five, something like that. So he's he's a claimed author. Um, he's very introspective. He has a lot of fiction, but this is not one of his fiction works. This this work is a work of about introspection, about how he views the world, views himself, views his body in relation to the world, uh, views uh, words, how how we write, and how we think of uh, literature and art. And those types of things that that's what we're reading here so what were your initial impressions reading the first half of this book uh so i thought it was interesting that like he, he makes parallel the sun and steel is symbolism it's symbolism for the hardship and realities of life i had had the impression at first that he was trying to make a parallel because he, he he discusses how He's conflicted between the world of the mind and the words that you have to use to express everything, but then actually just going outside and existing and, and building up your body in a way that can match your mind and maybe even fortify your mind through through physical strength. So the sun and the steel at first looked like a parallelism between the differences between mind and body and how to bring health to both although as i got to the middle it's clear that he actually is somewhat contemptuous about language itself yes so uh he started off as a good platonist where he viewed words as abstract ideals and the body as something wholly unrelated and so mm -hmm. as he grew and developed in his mindset uh he he kind of figured out that the body has some sort of link to the abstract. And so he set upon this uh, introspective goal of perfecting his body so he could get in touch with some sort of higher reality. I, I would consider mm -hmm. this guy a reverse Platonist. And so, yeah, so like uh, the Platonists of old, like Plotinus, they're like, oh, the material body is, is worthless. The material world is nothing. And we should forsake it all and, and seek the higher and try to ascend into the ether. And uh, uh, Porphyry records that Plotinus died all withered and frail. He didn't like eat very much food. And, mm. and he, he had like disease and, and he's dying. And Mishima's like, L listen, back in World War II, I was too weak and frail to die. It, that's an ignoble death. All mm. these people who are fat or, or skinny and frail, people who have poor physical outwards, that stuff is a reflection of the soul. And so he's like, I'm not going to die like that. I am going to work on perfecting my body. And in that way, I could try to reach the ideal uh, spiritual essence something yeah, something yeah like that. yeah to, to be clear what he means by too weak and frail to die is that he uh there's, there's two basic ideas one is that it is a like it, it allowed him to not fight in noble ways and in noble occasions because he wasn't weak enough to be putting put in the, the circumstances in the first place and so that's what he saw of himself in world war ii but he also has a more um I, he has in his vision, his mind, a vision of a noble death, and a noble death 
is something that you would see as heroic where you you should be dying in a way that that is something that the stories are to be written about but you can't be some fat slob who dies a heroic death you have to have your body match it just to be able to be in a position where your death meant something you had to be the someone who is someone of strength of power who is fighting something who is risking everything because he has a lot to lose and he has Every, everything to, to fight against. And so he's, he starts out his writing about how language works. And he sees language as some sort of ideal that gets corrupted when it comes in contact with reality. And we could kind of understand that language is abstract. It, it doesn't quite it communicate precisely the reality that we're trying to describe. There's some sort of chasm when we have discussions where we, we we have to just present the gist of something and recreating it in one's own mind and matching that to reality, there's going to be some loss in the transfer of information. Language is going to be imperfect for communication. I mean, language is a funny thing. The idea behind it is that you try to come up with a commonality of concepts between a great many people condense it into a, a very small symbol so that and then try to combine them in ways to express ideas that you couldn't express through experience itself but the the very notion of that is corrupting to the experience itself because it you're you're actually turning something unique your experience into something common just for the sake of communicating in the first place and i think he was recognizing that very fact that language itself has to distort the very thing that you experienced in order to try to express it. Yeah, so he does have a passage. Uh, I don't have it pulled up right now, but basically describes how language, to the extent that people are lauded as excellent writers, they're writing in a unique way, which, which undoes the purpose of language, which is supposed to be a universal way to communicate. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's something... Uh, some some sort of antinomy or some sort of a subversion of the purpose of language in in this these type of writing exercises, and so uh, very early in his life he started to try to figure out if his experience of reality is shared among other people and if we could whittle down to some sort of basis by which we can know that we have certain shared experiences. And an ex example he gives is some people carrying some sort of sort of totem, um, some sort of shared exercise of physical exertion. And he sees one of the people staring into the sky and he wonders what that guy is seeing in his vision until he himself goes through that same experience. And just the weariness that that brings upon him staring into the sky, uh, he gets lost in, in the visions of the sky. He says it's a unique sky that he's never seen before. Or, or sense, but that everything was, it wasn't some grand vision. It's just staring into the sky, something that he knows he has in common with that person because of the shared physical activity whittles away the other introspective uh, thoughts that we might be having. It, it, it pushes man to his, his basic, basic self. And in that way, he said, all men think like me. So I thought that was pretty funny. I don't think that all people think alike, but uh, maybe him and his neighbors have some sort of shared experience. Yeah, I mean, it's just like he's he's annoyed by the fact that no matter how much he tries to communicate an idea, he cannot do it. And so he needs to identify ways to actually find that shared experience if language is insufficient to do it. And what he comes up with uh at least as far like i only have my way into the middle of his book but he, he decides that pain is the most real expression of life because it is one of the most extreme experiences someone can can endure and it just it, it heightens everything about the senses yeah in those passages i think that's in chapter four he talks about as soon as you got an opponent in front of you standing there with like a stick ready to beat you um, all your introspection goes away. It's like mm -hmm. you, yeah, you're, everything is reflexive. You, you have you have to you're, you're facing reality. So no matter what thoughts you have, when you get hit by that stick, you're going to feel some pain. 
And in that sense, you know, you exist and the abstract does not exist. The abstract's Uh not going to be able to reflect back and then stop that, that stick from hitting you and hurting you in some sense that in, in that sense, the abstract does not translate to reality. So David writes, black shirts are actually the most real representation of life. Maybe, maybe not to uh, Mishima, who talks very negatively about the dark and night. <laughs> he, he talks about when he was a kid, uh, there, there are people of the night who love night. Well, if you're in World War II and you're a soldier, you're going to love night because night is darkness. Night will stop snipers from shooting you. You're able to move at night. You're able to uh, do things without fear of death. And he writes about his experiences in World War II where the sun would come up and the sun would reflect across the battlefield. It would reflect across the blood, reflect across all the shiny metal, the the people's uniforms, uh, the flies that are on the dead bodies. And the sun was associated with death. Uh, But he talks about how his experience started reversing. He started associating with the night and all the things that come along with the night. He started embodying until he figured out it was making him weak. And the people of the night, he looked at these people, the philosophers who philosophized by night, and they're weak people. He's very much, very much into physiognomy that how people act and behave is expressed outwardly. And it, uh, it shows in their body, the way they're built, uh, their facial expressions. And so in that sense, he's like, these people are weak. What, what are they telling us? Why should we listen to them? And I do got a meme that uh, I, I I pulled up a couple memes. And uh, the first one's this one. Uh, I'll pull this over. Basically kind of illustrating the idea that uh, people who are inwardly ugly and miserable, that sort of thing starts expressing outwards. I mean, you, you've, you've probably known fat people who are kind of ugly but are have a cheery disposition, and they're not as ugly. Uh, it, it's their their inward self starts bearing on their outward. But you also might know very attractive people that look very ugly on the outside. Their inward soul is, is, is showing out. Uh, how people think is how they start to appear. And that's, that's one of these ideas. He's all for uh, maximizing the body as well. And so when you have health ministers, this is a famous meme, all the, all the experts, the health ministers, and they're all pathetic people. They're weak people. They're people that uh, are, are in terrible physical health. And they're trying to tell us to do things like get certain uh, jabs, vaccines, things like that. And these people are just the most grotesque visions of human beings imaginable. It's it's almost it's almost like they're trying to lord us, us it over us. These people are your health ministers. Ha ha ha! You're going to have to do what they say or else. Look, look how much how we humble you. Look how much humiliation you go through, being forced to listen to these people as your health ministers. It's like I wouldn't listen to these people for health advice. I'll tell you what. Uh, when we're growing up, I don't remember if you remember. In school, they try to teach things like the food pyramid, which is just all complete lies. It was, uh, yeah, it, it, it's arguably something that's designed to make you large, lethargic, like not not very active or eager to do anything important. Right. So, like the Plains Indians were meat eaters; they were like six feet tall, and uh, the South American Indians were farmers they were more like five feet tall uh in, in our food pyramid they put the base as carbohydrates breads rice mm-hmm. um these types of things they they want it to be our our staple food source rather than the meats the eggs the proteins they said limit intake of these things uh, they they inverted the pyramid they, they're trying to build an unhealthy society and these are the types of people pushing that sort of nonsense on us I do find it a bit interesting that the Dutch, and I've met a, quite a bit of Dutch now, they're, they're one of the tallest groups of people in Europe. They were not one of the tallest groups of people in Europe, as far as I understand it, like 150 years ago. And 
I think a lot of their behaviors has, have helped them, but what I know at least from their diet is they, they basically just have about a sandwich for lunch every day. They, they eat simple food. They don't eat large amounts. Drink a bit of beer. <laughs> but it's interesting to see the differences between uh, what you're told is healthy which and what ends up actually being healthy. And, and as far as I can tell, grains are not all that vital in general for physical health. Yeah, it seems to be the meats and the proteins, everything they told us to avoid. Uh, and, uh, you know, all you have to do is look at someone to know whether or not to trust them. And it, it takes a real weak person to say, oh, that person doesn't have a PhD or a certain document. They can't t look at, just look at them. Do you want to look like them? Do they look healthy? Do these other people look healthy? Uh, okay, I got this clip here from from a show. Yeah, we should watch it real quick. I, I found it while I was I was uh, I was pulled up clips for this episode. Um, Julius, you're a fitness trainer. What do you think of Jenny and Dorothy being happy with their bodies? Um, I think that's that's fantastic. Are you healthy? As, have you been to the doctors and they've told you that you're healthy? Well, I think that's quite a loaded question because I don't think anyone here who's thin was, is going to be asked that. So mm. I, I guess that's what I would say to that answer, that we have to look as well at the assumptions that are made. Uh, and I would say you can't actually tell someone's lifestyle or health by looking at them. I do think that there's such a health focus in our country mm -hmm. that uh, I call it healthism, a kind of okay. moral obligation for people to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to watch that too. But that's... isn't that because it costs taxpayers a lot of money if the population isn't healthy? People have to go to hospital, they have various kinds of diseases. <clears throat> isn't that part of the reason why there's that focus? That poor guy, he's just like looking, he's like... He's, he's smart enough to not know... To, to, he's smart enough to know not to say things, even though he very much is thinking certain things. Yeah, you can see it in his face. He's just yeah. like, oh, okay, yep, yeah. Uh-huh, yep. uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... It, it, you definitely understand a person's life and their decisions and what they can handle by how they look. So Mishima, and I think this is a completely valid, he found that his mental mental uh, mental uh, faculties able to uh, ability to process information starts changing as he worked out his body hmm. that uh, your physical changes lead to mental changes and the two are they're linked in some fashion and and uh, linked in a real way uh, I pulled up a study let's let's see if I still got that pulled up somewhere but uh, the study was basically saying that uh, Democrats who are given testosterone start leaning right. <laughs> uh, yeah, like all the BuzzFeed people who had zero testosterone oh, in them. Oh, <laughs> man, that, that was terrible. I do got that somewhere yeah. as well. That, that Oh, they had less testosterone than like a 60-year-old man. And so <laughs> testosterone administration induces a redshift in Democrats, and they use a placebo group and uh, a non-placebo group to try to try to figure that out yeah it seems like cities in general engender lack of testosterone because people are more sedentary and they're they're just traveling together in groups they're also i think testosterone is is also boosted by competitiveness and people try to be more collaborative and accommodating in when you're in larger groups so yeah. there's something about cities in general that just sort of strips men of what they're built to be. Yeah, it's uh, you don't get out, you don't get uh, hiking, you don't get in the sun, you don't get. I, I spent today gardening and pulling weeds and, yeah. and putting down liner to stop. And then I come in, I'm exhausted and I'm sweaty and I need to shower. <laughs> I'm dirty. There's dirt everywhere. Um, you, you just don't get that in the big cities. So Roddy says it makes Christians really angry when you say Christians should not be overweight. Uh, they get super, super spiritual platitudes like, oh, we're going to get new bodies, which uh, it's <laughs> a few things about that. One, uh, he in here, he has a great quote where he talks about how fatness is an outward sign of an inward, like a depravity of soul. It's like a depravity of willpower, like like you can't 
stop yourself from eating. And the Bible is so very much against sloth. It's very much against uh, lust and envy gluttony. and gluttony, uh, becoming fat. And so it it's it might not it might be okay to have a bad body, but it represents something deeper on a spiritual level to let it all go down. Uh, it, a little bit of defense, just not of Christians in general, but in, in the modern situation, is that all the food that we have is built in a way to maximize sugar content, minimize nutrition. Uh, it, we are now, in modern times, kind of walking on landmines. And so people end up getting fat, and then because they they didn't learn nutrition properly and learn that you have to avoid most of what's out there. They get defensive because the, in, in ways they're a bit helpless to, to, to do anything about it. Yeah. David, uh, David points out fat church ladies worrying about me <laughs> smoking cigars. It is real funny. It's very selective. And I think it's selective for a reason that women tend to be fatter than men. And so smoking is easier for them to crack down on because then they're, it's something they could fight and not be a hypocrite about. It doesn't take as much willpower to avoid. I remember I went to summit ministries and uh, there was this, I, I, this was back before cell phones and stuff like that. And so I was by the, the pay phones or whatever to call out. And there was a girl crying on the phone. I didn't know what she was crying for, but it turns out she was getting bullied by the Christians there because she was a smoker. And it's like these, these girls bullying her for smoking Oh, your, your, your body is a temple. They're all fat. If they're all fat and they're bullying her and yeah. she left and, and there was, it became a big thing and everyone had to sign a little, we're sorry for bullying you for smoke. It's like smoking. It's like, you know what? Smoking is an appetite suppressant. So if I had to pick <laughs> between one of them, for a lady, it would be smoking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was, that's interesting. And uh, smoking's not as dangerous as they've they've beat into our minds that it is. So it's not. Yeah, it is low. interesting to see that the lung cancer rates have stabilized. So yeah, well, there are, other, there are plenty of other causes of lung cancer than smoking. Back back in the day, I wrote a bit article on it for the college newspaper, and I said this: the cancer rates in Greece are like non-existent, and the smoke everyone smokes. And uh, the CDC or whatever said, oh, that's because they have a healthy lifestyle. They do a lot of walking and fruit. So instead of telling Americans you could smoke as long as you have a healthy lifestyle, eat a lot of fruit and stuff <laughs> like that, they just say, let's just cancel the smoking and get rid of that. It's like, you guys, it's 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 just terrible. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what I mean, though, is that especially in the U.S., a lot is stacked against people that lead to them being fat. And it's important to to be healthist or whatever that woman said on, on the video in order to counteract that because it's it's so ubiquitous and which makes it so easy to get fat. And I don't know how else you're going to do it besides really pointing out that this is not like like this is a reflection of of how you think this changes the amount of energy you have in the day and your ability to do basic chores to be able to think to be able to build things to be able to go to places to be able to explore like you can't you can't go on vacations and stuff because you have to walk everywhere so it, it it completely changes the kind of life you live yeah, so he, he talks about perfecting his body. Uh, he says, they also, it seems, fulfill the function of taking revenge on and correcting any excessive eccentric idea. When he when he says this sentence, what he means is that if, if we have eccentric ideas about what's true and what's false, it will manifest in the body. And he writes, I had always felt that such signs of physical individuality, inv individuality as a bulging belly a sign of spiritual sloth or flat chest with protruding ribs. Someone who's like frail mm -hmm. is a sign of unduly nervous sensibility where excessively uh, were excessively ugly. Both those things were excessively ugly. And I could not contain my surprise when I discovered that there were people who loved such signs. He's talking about like people like the Platonists or the people who are mm -hmm. like, Oh, 
that guy is uh, yep. such a good philosopher. Look at him. He's yeah. He, look, look at Gandhi. He, the, the frail, <laughs> completely helpless guy who barely ate. Oh God. He's, he's quite. He's the spiritual leader, right? Oh man, yeah. It's like people who elevate Gandhi to some sort of like he is this. Mishima is the anti-Platonist. He's like, perfect your body and you will perfect your soul. He says, uh, I discovered people who love such signs. To me, these could only seem acts of shameless indecency as though the owner were exposing his spiritual pundenda on the outside of his body. They represented one type of narcissism that I could never forgive. And so he rightly points out that these types of things... Gandhi was a narcissist and people like this are narcissists and mm-hmm. they care entirely about themselves. They're lazy. They're slothful. Uh, they think highly of themselves more so than is actually deserved. All right. So I'll, I'll keep rolling on here. Oh man. Here's the, here's the, here's the passage about the sun. He said that same sun, as the days turned to months and the months to years, had become associated with a pervasive corruption and destruction. In part, it was the only way it gleamed so encouragingly on the wings of planes, leaving on missions, on forests of bayonets, on badges of military caps, on embroidery of military banners, but still more, far more, it was the way it glistened on the blood flowing ceaselessly from flesh and on the silver bodies of flies clustering on wounds, holding sway over corruption, leading youth in droves to its death in tropical seas and countrysides. The sun lorded over it that vast, rusty red ruin that stretched way to the distant horizon. So as a military man, the sun was associated with death. And then he gradually, he gradually started seeing the sun as his friend after the war. He says, they're the men who indulged the night. The men who indulged in nocturnal thought, it seemed to me, had without exception dry, lusterless skins and sagging stomachs. They sought to wrap up a whole epoch in capacious night of ideas and rejected it in all its forms, the sun that I had seen. They rejected both life and death as I had seen them. For in both of these, the sun has had a hand. So he, he likes to talk about life living vitality so just like the bible you're going to see a lot of light imagery the sun is the good thing uh and within the bible the night is the bad thing the night that conceals evil acts the sun brings light to things the sun sun brings life vitality that's what he's going for and he's he's pressing against these people who prefer the dark prefer the night prefer the waking hours yeah, one of the interesting concepts that he does bring up with the sun is that the sun beats down on people too, and but he, he points out that that is a like it actually reshapes you, uh, like like uh, many kinds of trials and endurance you go through. To be able to endure the sun is to endure is a way to strengthen yourself, and and so it 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 ends up not being a negative whatsoever but something that builds character to be out in it rather than hiding away at night to, to all your gluttonies. Yeah. He says, who pays attention to a physical education theorist grown decrepit? Yeah. Who cares about what these, these meme people tell us uh, who themselves yeah. are They've never been outside. Yeah. Disgusting people. And oh. they're telling us health advice and telling us how to live. It's like, those are not the lives we want to emulate. Those are not the people that we want to be. They should not have any position in which they're telling people these things. And so he talks about how there is a sense in which both the spiritual and the physical have involuntary aspects. Like our our circulatory system, we don't control. We just breathe and we breathe naturally. So even the physical world, we don't have tangible experience with we don't it's not something that we could control it's something that's maybe imposed on us and spiritually as well our our mind is forced to do certain things in the same way and so his goal in training the body uh you you could train your muscles to do things there's those guys at the gym who do those little pec flexes or whatnot 
uh, because through through constant effort and training, you're able to take control voluntarily of what otherwise would be involuntarily involuntary. The same with the mind, and so he sees a real a real parallel between training his mind to think and training his body to lift. And both of those things take gradual, a uh, continual effort. Uh, it takes focus and dedication over long periods of time. It's there, there's no quick solutions for these things. Yeah. I, I think it's important when he talks about building his muscles that, that he actually seeks to find a balance between this, the aesthetic look of muscles, but also the function. He doesn't want to d dive too heavily into one or the other. Uh, and so the idea of the steel is that he's actually building his muscles to meld steel and that he's actually making a practical application of his body in building his muscles. Uh, and he found that, that that sense of purpose that he gave his muscles actually had had a significant effect on how he's building his muscles and and his and the actual consequential um, thoughts that that correspond to that 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 when your mind is bent towards a goal and your body then becomes the the vehicle that you use towards that goal that 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 itself is what keeps you from living in flights of fancy and so what, what he really does not like and he keeps trying to guard himself through in the book is this idea that he is his imagination is going to carry him away to something unreal uh he doesn't want he doesn't want to disappear too far in in any given fantasy fanciful world and in order to do that he has to keep himself focused on real tasks yeah so his goal effort. is like the essential or the ultimate or or the pinnacle of real experience rather than the imagination. He, he's hyper-focused on reality. In that way, he's not a Platonist either who tries to escape the body, to have some sort of metaphysical uh, extent or something like that. Uh, Mish mm -hmm. Mishima disclaims drugs. He's like, you don't, you don't do drugs or anything like that to try to get these experiences. Try to, yeah. try to, try to stay focused in the real world, people. But he, but he doesn't disclaim pain. And, and so he uses pain as the sense of drugs where, where it's become something real and it exists for a reason as, as opposed to drugs, which, which actually still carries you away in, into nothingness. Uh, I do find it interesting. So basically, at least as far as I've gotten, he seems to be what, what's considered a phenomenologist, except uh, when I understand phen phenomenologists in a religious context, it's mostly this idea that you are, you can never express what seeing God is like because it is so unique that no words will ever capture it. Uh, and so I was initially completely opposed to an idea of phenomenologist, but he's not taking this in, in a metaphysical perspective so much as a uh, personal experiential perspective where you know he, he just he, he can never get to the point where words are really the vehicle to capture an idea you have to go live it and i think that's a much more healthier way to be more of a phenomenologist uh but there are dangers to going too far in that way too and so i, I think uh you, you need to be a little wary of, uh, about what he's doing too. There are times to stop back and to introspect. And I think at least what he's been describing, he is he is so deeply eschewing language as, as a proper vehicle that I think it's starting to do harm. Yeah, I do like how he describes uh, his interaction with steel, his gradual lifting, his, his muscles turning into the steel that he himself is lifting. The more he lifts it, the more he sees connections between his muscles and the inert steel. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's let's read what he says over here. Uh, where did that right off to? Oh, to revive the dead language, the discipline of steel was required. To change the silence of death into the eloquence of life, the aid of steel was essential. He's he's a he's a vitalist. He wants to live a mm. full and meaningful life. He, he wants to create his body, his mind, his soul into the pinnacle of classic conceptions. That's one of the things he talks about language, that language is ideal. And so he's set to make his body as close to that ideal as possible, knowing that he'll never reach that ideal state. 
uh, but just the fact that he's doing it is is giving him something that these other people aren't. He says, the steel faithfully taught me to correspond between the spirit and the body, thus feeble emotions. It seems to me corresponded to correspondingly to flaccid muscles, sentimentality to sagging stomach, and over-impressionability to over-sensitive white skin. Uh, more, more physiognomy. Yeah. Yeah, later on in in the book, he says that at, at a certain point, he becomes so um, uh, his sense of self becomes so attached to his current muscles that they disappear entirely because it's no longer a new thing that he's built. It is actually a part of who he is, and so his mind has been conformed in such a way that that his whole very sense of being is built into what what his goals are at that point. Another way that he rejects Platonism is that he talks about our body being like fleeting perfection. Uh, he talks about how Greek statues take a snapshot in time of when we have youthful vigor, uh, but we ourselves can be in, in, in a fleeting moment of time within our lives, just, just a fluid perfection that's dynamic. I think that's within the first four chapters. I don't think it's outside of it. <laughs> But uh, is this what you're talking about? Where his cooling muscles in the breeze and uh, the sweat vanished as though yeah. by magic coolness passed over the surface of the muscles. Next instant, I was rid of the sense of the muscles existence. And in yep, the same way it. that words by their abstract functioning can grind up the concrete world so that worlds themselves seem never to have existed. My muscles at that moment crushed something within my being so that it was though the muscles themselves had similarly never existed. So he's saying words themselves can never adequately describe reality. And our physical being itself in the same way can't, doesn't have interaction with fundamental reality. That both of them create this, can crush it and turn it into like uh, a non-experience or something like that. Is that what you're getting from that? Yeah, because because it's no longer it, it's no longer in the forefront of of who he is. It's been condensed at that point. Because, I mean, that was the takeaway I had from it. Oh, here here's a green highlight. Mm. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! It's it's green. It means it's important. In actual fact, words armed with their abstract function originally put in their appearance as a working of the logos designed to bring order to the chaos of the world of concrete objects. I th say he's, he's correct there that language wants to build in our mind pictures of reality that we could transfer to other people and have them recreate it. The expression was essentially an attempt to turn the abstract functioning back on itself like an electric current that flows in reverse, summon up a world of phenomena with the aids of words, words alone. We communicate to try to tell the other person something meaningful that they can reconstruct in their own mind. Yeah, but you can only do that through a sort of common understanding of the meaning of words. And so it's a sense of order between all those words. And so it's an interesting idea Words become both the way that you bind people together, but it's also limiting for for any kind of experience itself. Words will never get you to the experience on its own. I do find it interesting, though, that, that words will create experiences that you can never experience personally. It'll, it'll create senses of ideas that, that go off in directions that of non-realities. And that is the very thing that he's disgusted with, with words, that, that, that they can pervert what truth is in the first place through those flights of fancy. Right. He has this whole paragraph where he is basically criticizing imagination. How often have men escaped from the pains of their own bodies with the aid of sentimental aspect of the imagination that fills the ills of others' flesh at its own? And how often has the imagination unquestioningly exalted spiritual sufferings who relative value was in fact excessively difficult to gauge? And when this type of arrogance of the imagination links together the artist's act of expression and accomplices, there comes into existence a kind of fictional thing, the work of art. And it is this interfer interfer interference from a large number of such things that has steadily perverted and altered reality. As a result, men end up 
by coming into contact only with shadows and lose the courage to make themselves at home with the tribulations of their own flesh. I don't think he's going to like, he would have liked video games very much. I don't know. I just, just throwing <laughs> I that it. out there. I, I don't think he'd like modern Japan very much. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that was his whole goal is to bring yeah. Japan back to something traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is to stop anime from happening. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been the guy. So he talks about, uh, this is the chapter that he starts talking about his physical con- combat. And the physical combat actually introduced a third party into his imaginations. And this third party, because this third party existed, it was able to teach him that there's this outside reality, that the, the realm of ideas, it it uh the realm of ideas just doesn't interact the same way. The realm of ideas doesn't do anything when someone's hitting you with a bamboo sword. Hmm. You're just going to get hurt and none of your ideas are going to stop it. He says it was the opponent, the opponent that lurked in the empty space beyond the flash of the fist and the blow of the fencing sword, gazing back at one that constituted the true essence of things. Ideas do not stare back. Tilings do. Yeah. You get hit by a sword. You're going to know that you're hit by a sword. You're going to say, ouch, um yes that sword actually exists that was an experience i did experience that thing it hurt so maybe he's like descartes but but he's like i I hurt therefore i am well no like no question that's what he says that's why he says pain is the very definition of life that that's how extreme he gets to it that is the truest understanding of who you are yeah, I think he gets to in a in another chapter about how when you start training for fighting and you start interacting with that individual, you, you're in some subconscious level reacting spontaneously, uh, predictively, without thinking about it, without processing these thoughts, and you almost have to like see the future to figure out what the person's going to do and react with, with, with enough time. And so I don't think that's this chapter, but uh, one that that's coming on. Mm. So he writes the cynicism that regards all hero worship. This is, this is my, one of my favorite passages. This is a very good one. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he says the cynicism that regards all hero worship as comical is always shadowed by a sense of physical inferiority. Invariability, it is the man who believes himself to be physically lacking in heroic attributes who speaks mockingly of the hero. And when he does, how dishonest it is that his phraseology, partaking ostensibly of a logic so universal and general, should not, or at least should be assumed by the general public not to, give any clue to his physical characteristics. I have yet to hear hero worship mocked by a man endowed with what might justly be called heroic physical attributes. Facile cynicism, cynicism invariably is related to feeble muscles or obesity, while the cult of the hero and a mighty nihilism are always related to a mighty body and well-tempered muscles, for the cult of the hero is ultimately the basic principle of the body, and in the long run is intimately involved with the contrast between the robustness of the body and the destruction that is death. You do see that, that uh, it is typically the weak people who are criticizing and disparaging people who are healthy and fit. Like uh, uh, in, in Twitter right now, the, the right wing bodybuilder types, who, who's criticizing these guys? Typically weak uh, people who are... It's the neckbeards. Neck beards or or uh, people who get into transgenderism because they didn't succeed at their original gender, so they're going to try out a new gender. Now there's some weird freak of nature that is just criticizing these like like Adonis built bodybuilders who who put in a lot of time and effort. So that's the thing about it. Um, it takes a lot of time and effort. It takes a long-term vision. It, it's not something that is just given to these people. Sure, genetics plays a role, but if you're seeing someone who's fit like that, if there's not a shortcut, there's no shortcut to get there, it tells you something about their character and who they are. 
and it's it's something that we shouldn't we shouldn't just uh, dismiss as if as if it that it was nothing they they just got that for free so i i do do like that um and i i don't disparage quote quote uh hero worship yeah i think uh, hero worship is 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 kind of it's something that people tend to gravitate towards in a lot of ways they want to build up something outside of themselves and they want to see people struggle against great things. Uh, later in, his, in, in the book, I, I keep coming back to this, but it, like, it is a keen thing in, in his ideas that he says you cannot have a hero without the, without the specter of death being your ultimate enemy. Death is like no matter how you're going to couch it up in your story or, or in what happens in, in reality, you are fighting against death when you are being a hero. You want, you want to break it. And so to be a hero means that you have to have the strength to resist it against all things. And the weak, those people with the physical ailments, they are halfway there already and, and being spiteful towards those who, who can have the strength to resist it. Yeah, he writes, the thing that ultimately saves the flesh from becoming ridiculous is the element of death that resides in the healthy, vigorous body. It is this, I realize, that sustains the dignity of the flesh. How comic would one find the gaiety and elegance of the bullfighter were his trade entirely divorced from the associations of death? Yeah, it, it just, it, if the bullfighters, there's no death involved... Uh, what, what's he doing? What's what's going on there? It's not a noble cause. It's it's not a spectator sport anymore. There there's 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 no stakes, right? It's it's like if you're watching a movie and it's a Marvel movie or something, and you know no one's gonna die, the good guys are gonna win, and they try to do a fake death scene or you're like, well, what are we watching? What what am I watching here? Why are we watching this movie? Why did you guys put that in? Everybody knows that you're just trying to fake a it's at. Tr- <laughs> Fool me 20 to 25 times, shame on me. Fool me 50 <laughs> to 100 times, shame on you. I don't know. On me again. <laughs> yeah, on me again. <laughs> Just shame on the, all the people watching those Marvel movies. Or, oh, guess what? The good guys win again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are no risks. And that's by design with those movies because they're, they're trying to constantly monetize them. They're not willing to create any story that that creates the the real specter but but it but he has disdain for even the stories that do because he finds them to be um in the sense that they are a story in, in the first place creates some immortalizes them is what he says and so by, by turning it into a story it, it is sort of a living dead thing where you, should you even see the death or risk the death in it, it, it by the sense of it being a story will never die. It, it, it cannot die. And so he, he sees that in itself as not true risk, true death, true heroism. Yeah, you so can he, only get that through reality. You cannot get that through the words themselves. Right. He he does distinguish between like an intellectual courage and then a physical courage. And he writes about physical courage. The acceptance of suffering as proof of courage was a theme of primitive initiation rites in the distant past. All such rites were at the same time ceremonies of death and resurrection. Men have by now forgotten the profound hidden struggle between the consciousness and the body that exists in courage and physical courage in particular. Consciousness is generally considered to be passive and the active body to constitute the essence of all that is bull and, and bold, probably sometimes there's spelling errors in this bold and daring yet in the drama of physical courage, the roles are in fact reversed. And so I, I do like how he uh, it could be written for a modern audience. This is maybe uh, like 80 years ago, something like that. It could be written for a modern audience that people have, they don't experience physical courage. They don't go out and do heroic things. Mm-hmm. How many people have had combat experience? And, and even if you had combat experience, is going into Iraq and just driving in a Humvee and then is that the same thing as the World War One, World War Two type of people who are fighting hand-to-hand combat in very 
very adverse circumstances where Ukraine fighters, uh, these videos coming out of Ukraine, that's real war. People just yeah. just get killed and destroyed. And so you're, you're not seeing too much of that these days. Real physical courage. And all those people who are fighting in Ukraine willingly have real physical courage. I, I won't either side. You know, there, there's something, uh, there's, there's something that's that you have to admire about even like the American mercenaries or people joining either side, going to go do like a George Orwell and go fight for some sort of abstract ideal, that sort of thing. And I think Mishima would have would have uh, encouraged that sort of stuff, that sort of sort of uh, will to succeed in these environments. All right. To embrace the suffering is a constant role of physical courage. And physical courage is, as it were, the source of the taste for understanding and appreciating death. That, more than anything else, is a prime condition for making true awareness of death possible. However, much of the closeted philosopher mulls over the idea of death, so long as he remains divorced from the physical courage that is a prerequisite for any awareness of it, he will remain unable to even begin to grasp it. He's he's criticizing modern philosophers. Oh, they just sit in their boarding schools. They they haven't ever experienced near-death experiences. They haven't experienced anything tasking on their body. And they're all philosophizing about death. They don't know anything about death. These people are like the fat people who their bodies show who they are we shouldn't listen to them about these things they just don't they cannot grasp the things that later in the book he reads letters from from men who go to war that's in in like a museum people from the japanese suicide squads and these are men who know they're going to die and so that's that's a very impactful passage in his book but uh yeah i don't I don't think that these philosophers sitting in their ivory towers know anything about death. He says, insofar as that manliness was no longer of any practical use in society, it was scarcely distinguishable from art that depended solely on imagination. And of course he hates imagination. He says, oh, I didn't highlight it. Imagination. I detest it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, he doesn't like imagination. So that concludes chapter four. We'll do a part two where we go five through ten. But it's an interesting book. Um, it's interesting in uh, this is this is like normal philosophy where the people just write their thoughts on paper. Uh, one of these things you learn after college is that these philosophers are just people who are just writing their thoughts down. They're just like journalists. And so this is like his journal about him exploring his his body and how his body and mind function and how that deals with the world of abstract words and it's interesting it's it's inspirational i listened to this while while jogging you could you, there's a, a whole youtube uh, audio book that's available and so if uh, you jog six miles that's what like an hour uh, you, all you have to do is a couple the couple weeks of six miles each and then you're through the book but it's it's inspirational what he talks about his dedication and his dedication could could be of use to young men if young men show the same sort of dedication he has to weightlifting and applies it to their own life in their own endeavors they they could make themselves anything they want to basically yeah we are we're far too pushed over the edge in terms of fans the what is fanciful what is imaginative and not too much in what is real. And I think this is a good counterbalance to that. He, he takes, uh, but by pointing out that, that you cannot be healthy without experiencing reality. And you need, to, and there are ways you can do that systematically in ways that will, will make you grow. And, and your mind will, will be shaped by that in ways that you will appreciate. It is a very important thing, I think, for men in general to be lifting weights and, and to try to lift heavy weights, weights that, that, that cause a bit of uh, suffering when you're first lifting it, but it builds you up in a way where you have more power than you realize. 
uh, one of the most important things I think for any man at one point in his life is just to see what kind of peak you can get to because, because you don't really know the full extent of what's possible for yourself if you don't get to that peak physically. And that physical, it's not like you're, you're dedicating yourself to the physical as a way of avoiding the mental, as a way of avoiding the philosophical, your mind is more energetic because you built up that energy with your physical body. They are tied together. Your metabolism is tied very much directly to your physical body, your shape, your perception of yourself. It's not some some irrelevant thing. It is not some surface thing. It it builds you up. And and he's writing before all all the studies about testosterone and and uh, the beneficial effects of spending time in the sun and the chemicals and stuff like that. He, he in, intuits it because of his observation. He's a very observant person. If, if I do this, then this happens. And the, the, these are the effects. Yeah, there are good side effects, main effects of going outside, spending time outside, going on hikes, uh, going swimming, uh, taking the kids on runs through the neighborhood, something like that. Uh, just getting out and actually doing things yeah. in real life rather than sitting behind a screen all day and just absorbing information that what what do we do with all this information what what, yeah. what, what is the purpose uh yeah sun is good there's there's a guy that keeps posting on the god is open and he's like uh god is so bad because people go outside and the sun is terrible and gives them skin cancer and i'm always like go outside dude put the computer down and go outside <laughs> in the sun <laughs> uh, yeah you you can't get the experience of the sun by having vitamin d pills you have you have to actually go because the the health benefits are beyond whatever those those pills are you must go outside at some point yeah <laughs> it's important i go on walks quite a bit i think they're very valuable i think being outside just being outside is valuable in general yeah so and i think... I, I don't think i do it enough in all honesty i have a lot to learn and a lot of ways to grow but i recognize that it is very important for your growth yeah, and probably a good thing to get your kids into as well. At try as I might, my uh -huh. <laughs> my daughter's like, I'm like, let's go running, and she's like, she doesn't want to go running. <laughs> like, come on, let's do it. It'll be good, just a mile, one mile. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so we'll do a part two. Uh, I, th I think he's interesting as a person. I think he's a, basically a reverse Platonist. Uh, he he prioritizes the body the physical of the the mental uh, maximize stat maximization he's not a dump stat guy there's no dump stats with this guy he, mm. he pushes everything to the max as, as far yeah. as he can get it and he tries to become the ultimate person he, he's a vitalist is how i would describe him he loves life he cares about life um he thinks that life is worth living and uh he he's got a value system that he seeks to he seeks to embody mind and soul. And so he is admirable as an individual. Mm -hmm. And he, he tried to overthrow the government of Japan. So I guess that's a plus as well. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. Well, so we'll cut there and we'll probably do a part two sometimes. And uh, we'll have to figure out when that is. But right. uh, well, thanks for coming and thanks for talking this through. And uh, everyone can find this book, uh, the audio version on YouTube. The full thing is just like two and a half hours. So it's not it's not terribly long. You could just you could knock it out in a day. And uh, I I listened to it like multiple times because, you know, it's it's pretty dense stuff. And it's like, OK, what's he saying here? What's he saying there? So a couple readings might be might be in the cards. But all right, John, thanks for coming. Any questions, comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Uh, thanks for listening. Take care.